When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed from that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, Because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax came to Peter and asked, Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon? he asked. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own sons or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the sons are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not offend them, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. Morning, everyone. Um, just a couple of things before I get started today. First of, the, first of all, for those who haven't met me, my name's Ben. I'm uh, uh, one of the, the pastors at uh, Grace Anglican Churches, and uh, it's my joy to periodically come here and uh, open the Word of God uh, with this beautiful congregation. Second thing is, we're going to have a second Bible reading this morning, and it's going to come from Deuteronomy chapter 8, beginning verse 10. If I keep saying Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 10, hopefully those with Bibles who'd like to follow along can flick to Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 10. Uh, in about 10 seconds, I'll read from Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 10. And uh, I suspect by the time I actually do commence that reading... You'll be there. Do keep your fingers in the other page, though, because we are preaching from Matthew chapter 17. Uh, here we go. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 10 through to verse 20. Hear the word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. Verse 10. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you'll forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. 
He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of the hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. Like the nations the Lord destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. Let me lead us in prayer and we'll get stuck into Matthew chapter 17, beginning verse 14, and contrary to the words behind me, going to Matthew chapter 18 and verse 5. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you speak to us in your word, the scriptures. We pray that you would help us to rejoice and to tremble at your word this morning, uh, to take it to heart and to put it into practice so that we might become more like our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters, why sympathise with infant baptism? There's a start to a sermon. Why sympathise with infant baptism? As an ordained Anglican minister, I do hold the conviction that infant baptism, the baptism of of babies and very young uh, children, is a good and right practice for the church. If you are a follower of Jesus... I will gladly baptise your baby. And my own boys, three boys I have, were all baptised when they were very, very young. But more importantly, much more importantly, as a Bible-believing Christian, I hold the conviction that infant baptism is not a first-order issue. It fits in the category of what the Bible would call disputable matters. To paraphrase the Apostle Paul in Romans 14, one Christian considers infant baptism a good practice. Another Christian thinks adult baptism is the way to go. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own minds and it matters far more that people hold what's in line with their conscience than whether they fall into one category or the other. If you are someone who does not hold infant baptism, yet you are a member of our Anglican Church, which does, then by definition you hold that infant baptism cannot possibly be an issue over which to divide fellowship. To which I say, praise God and amen, and you are absolutely right to have that position. That's the biblically sound way to think. And I might add that the baptisms I've enjoyed the most, through happenstance, happen to to, to be the baptism of adults, some of which I've done myself. See, when I ask why sympathise with infant baptism, I'm not asking whether you agree with it or not. I'm asking why it's a respectable position to hold. The answer as to why it is a respectable position, whether you hold to it or not, has much to do with what Jesus teaches about what I'm going to call kingdom faith. When you learn what Jesus thinks about true saving faith, 
you learn why it is that the practice of infant baptism makes sense, whether you end up being for it or not. And some of the most important teaching of Jesus about, again, what I'm calling kingdom faith, are actually in today's passage from Matthew's Gospel. So I hope you're all ready now to get stuck into it with me. To start, we get a picture of the, uh, the precise opposite of kingdom faith. We start from the negative example, right? That is insidious self-sufficiency. You know what something, what insidious means? It's something bad that starts small and gets bigger and bigger, right? Insidious self-sufficiency. Here's how we start. Verse 14, when they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and he's greatly suffering. He often falls into the fire or the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. So, first up, we've got a guy who has the absolutely perfect and ideal approach to Jesus. He's kneeling before him. He calls him Lord. He's begging him for mercy for something that he by himself has absolutely no way of achieving. You can't get much better approach to Jesus than that. Interestingly, a couple of weeks ago, we had a woman doing the same thing for her daughter. Now we've got a man doing it for his son. But the reason he's got this perfect approach to Jesus rather than the disciples is because the disciples could not help him. What does Jesus think about the inability of his disciples to heal and cleanse this man's son? Well, it might not be what you'd sort of expect because it's really, really full on. Verse 17, Jesus goes uh, pretty hard. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon that came out of the boy and he was healed at that moment. Now, if you're like me on first reading, it seems that Jesus' response is really over the top. It's like a couple of weeks ago, you know, in the, the previous chapter, it's like, get behind me, Satan, to Peter. But now he's kind of doing it to, to all the uh, uh, apostles. And uh, also on first reading, uh, if you're like me, you think that Jesus' response seems kind of really unfair, which for us we'd say is un-Australian, although, sorry, sorry, un-Australian is uh, his response. It's kind of like the father saying, hey, Jesus, your disciples, being mere mortal humans, couldn't do this totally impossible and supernatural job. And Jesus goes, oh, my goodness, they're such a bunch of losers. How useless. I can't wait to get away from these guys. And you're like, wouldn't it be more, you know, fair for Jesus to have been kind and understanding? But of course, as I'm sure you all know, Jesus has that um, annoying habit of being absolutely right 100% of the time, being the divine son of God. So you see, our job is to work out why he is so indignant at this point. And I'm going to help you with that. All the way back in chapter 10, Jesus had actually given his disciples the authority to, quote, drive out impure spirits and heal every disease and sickness. This was within their authority and their purview. They should have been able to do this. And in the last few sections, just before our passage, you've been following from earlier in chapter 17 and before that chapter 16, Jesus has been really stressing the idea that entry into the kingdom of God is not about power and glory, but about 
the humble, other person serving way of the cross. So you put two and two together and you start to wonder if, as so easily can happen, that these disciples had started to think that their amazing power was actually coming from themselves. And that the kingdom of heaven was about the great power and the pride and the victory without necessarily the great weakness and shame and defeat of the way of the cross. As we saw from that second reading that I impromptu provided you with from Deuteronomy chapter 8, when God gives his people tremendous success, tremendous privilege, well, our sinful tendency quite easily is to start assuming that we kind of deserve it or it kind of comes from ourselves and insidious self-sufficiency so easily takes over our right sense that we're actually humbly reliant and dependent on him for all things. I think that's what's happening here. Now, it is true that Jesus' harsh comments could also portray a desperate frustration about the way Israel on the whole has so consistently rejected God and fallen under his judgment. Remember how he says perverse generation. It's not just the apostles that he's actually talking about at this point. And uh, on another day and another sermon, I'd love to go into that. However, the Gospel writer Matthew wants us to focus on the disciples because that's actually where he takes us uh, next after we've had that comment. We ask the question, is it the case that regardless of how general Jesus' words are meant to be taken, that these apostles have moved into self-sufficiency mode? Is that the case? Well, the answer is certainly yes. So verse 19, then the disciples came to Jesus in private... See, he focuses us on them. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, and the brutality continues, because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, presumably the mountain he'd just come from and been transfigured on, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. In other words, you do the logic that he's saying they didn't even have the tiny, smaller than a mustard seed amount of faith required. They had moved into self-sufficiency mode rather than God-reliant mode. Uh, We can be doubly sure of this because in a parallel account in Mark's Gospel, I think, Jesus points out that they didn't think to pray. And prayerlessness, by the way, is actually the ultimate indicator of self-reliance. Prayerlessness is the ultimate indicator of self-reliance. The less a person prays, the more self-reliant they are. The more a person prays, the more God-reliant they are. This is a teaching that you get all throughout the Scriptures, all throughout the New Testament... However, it's also a teaching that gets directed especially, not exclusively, but especially to men. Paul in 1 Timothy 2 has to urge men to be leaders in prayer. Men, be the prayer leader in your house. Young ladies, I say at night church, because I've got a lot of young ladies there, what's a really attractive guy? That's right, the one who prays. Then comes the final confirmation that the problem here really is self-sufficiency rather than a reliance upon God's provision. Jesus again tells them, 
again tells him about the way he'll actually overthrow the ultimate cause of all demonic possession and sickness and death. The path that will involve him being despised, rejected, shamed before entering into his glory. And how do the disciples respond when Jesus again gives them the gospel? Well, let's see, verse 22. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and on the third day he'll be raised to life. And I love the disciples' response. The disciples, it says, believed his word. They understood that the Christ had to suffer and then enter his glory. And they reasoned that Jesus would indeed be the suffering servant who would take up their infirmities and do away with the effects of sin. And they were overjoyed and elated to know that he was going to do that. And then he'll be raised up to new life, showing that he is the conquering Messiah. And they totally got it. No, obviously not. All we get is the disciples were filled with grief. They don't got it. It was still hard for them to lean not on their own understanding, but to acknowledge the one who would make the straight path, if you like, to the cross before being raised in glory. You and I, by the way, would be no different You and I would be exactly the same. You see, you and I would so readily trust our own abilities, our own instincts, our own understanding. We would lean on those things far more readily than we would lean on what God has revealed. And by the way, brothers and sisters, given that most of us on a world scale would actually be considered amongst the most successful, the most powerful, the most blessed, the most able, the most privileged people that the world has known, well, it follows that we in particular in our context, need to be especially aware of the ease with which insidious self-sufficiency can render us, frankly, ineffective for the work of the kingdom. Dear Lord, save us from prayerlessness and from self-reliance. I'd also mention, and I get in trouble for it given the current climate, but save us from pride. But what would it look like for these disciples once they did, and they will, once they did eventually, in fact, put more trust in God than in themselves? Well, one of the wonderful things that kingdom faith brings is the freedom to give up rights. Kingdom faith gives us the freedom to give up rights. And it's actually a really wonderful and liberating thing. That's where Matthew takes us next. Verse 24, after Jesus and his disciples arrived at Capernaum, The collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. And friends, I've got to tell you, I just cannot help but wonder if that was a very hesitant, yeah, he does, you know, like... There's no indication that Peter kind of knows that to be the case and given that in the next section Jesus is going to talk about it a bit and that Peter has the the habit of kind of just talking when he doesn't know what to say. Maybe it's like, I really, yeah, yeah, he totally does, I hope. Now, back in chapter 12, Jesus had made the extraordinarily, uh, extraordinarily grand claim that he was greater than the temple. 
in the temple, you know, that for the Jews, that's the place where the true and living God dwelt and where only Jews could enter. And Jesus said something greater than the temple is here, speaking of himself. And that could easily have caused the Pharisees to wonder if he was claiming to be someone who holds such a high or such a priestly office so as to be exempt from the upkeep that the average Jewish male as an adult would have paid, sometimes as a one-off, sometimes and presumably in this context as an ongoing upkeep for the service of the temple. It turns out that Jesus' claim is true, that is what he thought. Jesus happens to be the son of the true and living God who dwelt in that temple. And so continuing from verse 25, when Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak, just to remind you that he already knows what's going on before it happens, which kind of lends credence to the idea that, yeah, he probably is greater than the temple. Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon, he asked, from whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? And I love the way that Jesus puts the questions on a plate like this, right? What could you possibly answer other than what Peter replied? Well, the king's not going to collect from his own family, they're going to collect from, from others. Hence verse 26, that's what Peter answered. Then the children are exempt, Jesus says immediately to him. But, and this is a big but, so that we may not cause offence, go to the lake, throw out your line, take the first fish you catch, open its mouth and you'll find a four drachma coin, take it and give it to them for my tax and for yours. Uh, as a very important aside here, I love this little bit because I, in terms of my vicarious experience, I'm terrible at fishing. But imagine Jesus had said this command to you, well, then you would know that at least you would catch one fish that day. That would be the coolest time ever. Anyway, it is a big section, but uh, to simplify it, Jesus is saying, yes, he is the Son of God the son of the king who dwells in that temple, and therefore, yes, he is exempt from the tax. But as the son of God, he has the freedom to choose, if he so desires, to humble himself in order to serve, in order in this context to not cause offence. In fact, it's precisely because he has all the authority of the Christ, the son of God, that he can rightly then choose to humble himself before God and to serve others. It might be hard for Peter and the disciples to believe this because this has been the subject they've been hit with over the last three uh, passages. Uh, But if Peter then goes out and catches a fish and finds a four drachma coin in its mouth, which he kind of needs, well, maybe then he could believe that the Son of Man really came not to be served but that he would choose to serve and to to give his life as a ransom for many and maybe Peter and the disciples would likewise learn that they should not rely upon themselves but take up their cross give up their rights and follow him as the glorious Christ who's greater than Moses and Elijah as we saw last week I believe Gav would have brought the transfiguration to us last week yes good As the one for whom God has recently given his audible voice, saying, this is my son, who I'm well pleased, listen to him, Jesus did not have to choose to pay the price for your sin and mine. He did not have to do that. But as the Son of God, without compulsion, he freely chose 
to lay down his life, just as he would freely choose to raise it up again. Now, what does any of this have to do with kingdom faith, the faith that's sort of commensurate with people in the kingdom of God? Well, friends, it is a constant challenge to trust that God's miraculous provision for us is not actually for our glory, but for His. And it's also a constant challenge to trust that God's miraculous provision is actually all that's required for you and I to run the race marked out for us. And yet, denying ourselves daily, taking up our cross, actually frees us to concentrate on the needs of others. The good thing about being dead is you don't have any more needs. If you take up your cross, your life is over. Well, you're free to concentrate on the needs of others. As sons and daughters adopted into the family of God, which we are if we're in Christ, we serve others not because we have to, but because we're free to, because we can. And I've got to tell you, that kind of service, not under compulsion but out of choice, is always much better and more enthusiastic anyway. Kingdom faith gives me the freedom to no longer be concerned with my rights, but to be concerned with loving God and serving neighbour. And especially with that, that Matthew brings us to, I think, the key point of where this is all heading, to which the teachings he's recorded over the last few passages have actually been pointing. Uh, I'm biting off more than I should, because it means going into five verses of chapter 18, but I don't care because I can. Uh, Put simply, kingdom faith is decidedly childlike. The child, the infant, is completely unaware of any rights or worldly status and totally aware that they 100% rely on their carers for provision. That is the kind of faith that those in the kingdom will have. 18 verse 1, at that time... At the time where all this has happened, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You see how it links to all the stuff that come before? This is the question to which the previous section has been building up. Given that we've been learning that kingdom faith is the opposite to worldly notions of power and self-sufficiency, given that kingdom faith is far more about giving up rights and status and serving others by choice, well, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, of course, there is a certain irony to this question, because if you totally got what Jesus was going on about, you wouldn't think to then ask who's the best, who's the greatest. It's kind of the the opposite. But nonetheless, Jesus answers the question by giving them an example, and I should say the example par excellence, of faith in the kingdom. Verse 2, he called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. A couple of weeks ago, um, Kate's lovely little boy, Thomas, needed about an hour and a half or two hours of babysitting. Uh, the, the daycare was closed and the babysitting couldn't come and Kate had a scripture class 
to teach. And I said, well, I'll come. he was going to be asleep anyway. I'll come and just stay in your house because, you know, I don't want you to cancel Scripture. But, of course, halfway through, Thomas decided he wasn't going to sleep the whole time. And so I, you know, hear the, the whimpering in the cot, blah, blah, blah. He's finished his nap. I go pick him up, as you do. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. This is what you do. It's been... My kids are a bit older. Anyway. And um, he kind of was all really dopey and floppy because he hadn't woken up properly. And at one point, he kind of looked up at me and for a second, you could tell that what went through the head was something like, it's not mum, it's not dad. And then, like, what choice do I have? You know, he's a big, ugly, hairy man. He's nice and warm. I'll just do what I do as a kid, right? Um, It's a good expression of this kind of thing. The little child has no rights upon which to make demands. Now, of course, in reality, they have very, very important and significant rights, right? Rights that our culture, sadly, in many ways is infringing upon. Uh, We'll see next week's section, uh, Jesus has a lot to say about the importance of children. But I'm speaking from the perspective of the child. The rights that are given are given in the absence of the child's ability to apprehend them. The child simply holds on to whatever is provided, even if it's me. You'll do. And they have no sense of self-sufficiency. It can't. It doesn't occur to them. When there's something lacking, the first and often only thing they do is go, "Ah!" and ideally the parent goes, I'll see to, to that need. That's why Jesus, along with most people in most human cultures, can describe them, frankly, as lowly in the eyes of the world. Nothing to offer other than their extreme cuteness. No utility by which they may earn their keep, just dependent beings whose first instinct is to cry for help. Or, just as telling when they get to the toddler stage, just go, hmm, 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 my kids. All they can do is put out their hand, I want to receive something, right? And friends, that's why it's so fitting that those upon whom the sign of entry into God's kingdom is made by way of baptism are precisely those who have no ability and can depend on only what is given to and is done for them. Now, of course, that in itself is nowhere near a sufficient argument for the rightness of infant baptism, but like I said at the beginning, I'm not interested in doing that here, but I hope you can see, regardless of your position, Why many Christians do and through the ages have held that there's something very right about the infant being the one upon whom the sign of Christ's cleansing is performed precisely because they can offer nothing. Given that Jesus says we're to change and become like little children, we're to change to become like those who are lowly, then I think the logic would be that that's got to be an ongoing process. So, to summarise, I think the point of Matthew's passage here, the more mature we become as Christians, it must be the case that the more childlike our our reliance or dependence on God needs to be. That's where the disciples got it wrong. I think they were self-reliant, that's why they couldn't do it. As Jesus figuratively went down, 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 you know, being in very nature God but didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself a servant and then down, down further, humbled himself to obedience in reliance upon his heavenly Father to the point of death on a cross. 
Well, so too, in our spiritual lives, there's our direction, there's the taking up your cross path, if you like, where to continually increase our dependence upon Him and not on ourselves, to lean not on our own understanding. And by the way, that's one of the reasons that suffering, though itself a horrible thing, can yet also for the Christian become a means of great blessing. Because you see, for the Christian, suffering produces a necessary increase in our childlike dependence upon God, who is soon to bring us into eternal glory with Christ. Sometimes the suffering, if it's intense enough, kind of makes you like a little kid. All you can do is cry out, you put out your hand and say, help, I want this, I need this. The suffering kind of reduces you to actual kingdom faith. By way of implication, how can we sort of increase that childlike faith? How can we sort of get the, the steroids along that path, if you like? Well, the first thing I thought when I applied this to myself is what's the easiest bar? Because when I apply it to myself, I want to make it the easiest, lowest bar, right? When my kids come home from school, when I pick them up from school, I've worked out that if I say, how's your day or what happened, you know, mostly I'm going to go, hmm, yeah, good, or oh, yeah, whatever. And so you don't get much of an answer. But if I say something like, hey, can you remember one thing that happened today at school? If I ask them for one thing, then they think and, they, and then I get an answer. But so often one thing becomes two because it's related to another and then another and another. Okay, so here's, I think, a really helpful way that's a really low bar to increase your childlike dependence on God, it's just the entry point, right? Just think of one thing you can give thanks for. It can be the lamest, most mundane thing. I got brown shoes. Dear God, thank you that I have brown shoes, right? But any, any kind of thing like that, right? And you should, if you've been following along, go, Ben, shouldn't you be encouraging us towards prayerfulness so that you, we don't have insidious self-reliance? Yes, but this is how I do it. I'm pulling the rug from under your feet because I thank God for my brown shoes and I think, yeah, how many shoes do I have? I've got four pairs. Well, that other pair's a bit dodgy. Hey, God, can I get a new pair of shoes? Oh, yeah, uh, what do I need those for? Because I'm walking uh, to... Oh, yes, am I ready for that thing? Hey, God, can you... You see, you can just kind of open the floodgates a little bit. I do with myself what I do with my own children. But... Find one thing to give thanks for. Imagine you did that on a daily basis. Dear God, thanks that I have a bed. Dear God, thanks that I have a car, you know. Dear God, thanks that I, my kid turned five yesterday, whatever. Oh, yeah, and there's another thing and another thing and another thing, right? Tell yourself to say thanks for one thing. In very similar vein, I'm going to use some funny words here, find one thing to be God-conscious of. I think those words got cut off. Yes. One thing to be God conscious of. Now, what on earth do I mean by that? And why is there a photo of those three poles with wooden ducks on them? Does anyone know where those ducks are? Does anyone, who's seen them before? Yeah, it's when you walk around the lake, right? You know, the Harrington Park Lake. Um, for whatever reason, it was probably during lockdown when the only sort of sanity I could have was walking around, right? I walked around the lake and I saw these stupid things on poles. I was, Why is a duck? Is it even a wind thing? No, it's just a duck on a pole, right? It's just really stiff and like horizontal. Why are they there? I don't know. But for whatever reason, just on one occasion, one of the, during that COVID period, I was walking past them and I happened 
to ask God for something, right? That's, I mean, I pray often, but then, you know, not as often as I should. But for whatever reason, I was just, oh, God, I really need this, that or the other, when I was looking at the stupid ducks. Now, what do you think happens each subsequent time when I do the walk and around? For some reason, and maybe this is the quirkiness of my own brain, but for some reason, I, I think, oh, I should pray for something right? when I see the ducks. Now, this is in the crazy, nonsensical brain of Ben, but I reckon everyone has something like that. I reckon people have little, like, triggers for awareness. And f- for me, it also happens with music. If I'm driving in a certain road and there's a certain song playing, the next time I drive on that road, I remember the song that was playing, like in the, the thing, right? People like that. Well, imagine you just had something that goes on a daily basis or a weekly basis when I see that thing, no matter how ridiculous the connection might seem, you've got, oh, oh yeah, God, I really need this, oh yeah, God, thank you for that. Um, and you have God consciousness, you know, in your daily... I know some people who say, um, um, no Bible, no toothbrush. So, you have to brush your teeth in the morning. Imagine how, you, oh, I can't, you, please brush your teeth in the morning, right? <laughs> Imagine though, you, you got to the toothbrush and you hadn't read your Bible and you just couldn't do it, but you have to brush your teeth and so they have to read their Bible. Anyway, that's a God consciousness, right? Anything like that is just a practical step to increase your childlike reliance. The last one's the easy one. Sabbath means rest. I'm not going to go into a theology and a doctrine of the Sabbath like I'm not going to go with infant baptism. However, you should have a rest one day in seven because God made you that way. I'm sure we all agree on that. What we don't agree on is that uh, we give it more than lip service. I'm one of those people where uh, I'm going to point to you all and say, you should take a Sabbath and see what I'm pointing. You know the trick, right? When I'm pointing to you all, what am I doing? One finger at you, three fingers back. Yeah, yeah. Because this is quite hypocritical of me. I often struggle. But I've discovered this secret recently. It's amazing. I'll share it with you, right? Do you know that even me, if I sort of drop things for the one day that I've decided to have a day off, I couldn't believe it. But like, God somehow managed to keep the world going. It was amazing. Whoa, like without me working. And it's kind of like people kept breathing and the world kept turning and like, you know, the kingdom kept... Even without me for that one day. Unbelievable. So, if that can happen for me... You know, surely it can be. But you see the problem. I mean, I do it tongue in cheek because there really is something of a, I got the power, I'm the one that needs to do it if I can't take some time off. You've got to kill that. That's, the, that's not childlike faith, is it? The child goes, flop time. The toys are a mess. <laughs> Mum, you can clean that up. Like, I'm not going to clean I'm going to flop, right? That's childlike. That's Sabbathy. You might need to hear those three fingers that are pointing back at me as I point at you to go, yes, I, I really ought to get to the stage where I can just let things kind of be if it means having my day off because that's an extraordinarily childlike thing to do. With that, I'm going to go and sit down and relax. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who humbled himself in complete obedience and reliance upon you with a childlike dependence, even to the point of death on a cross. 
and then entered his glory. As he commands us to do likewise, Father, please increase our faith and please decrease our insidious self-sufficiency. Heavenly Father, may we be childlike in our reliance and dependence on you. May we find prayer triggers or things that cause us to give you thanks and to rely on you more and increasingly in prayer. And Father, may we recognise that in your sovereign goodness and control, you manage to keep running the world even when we take the day off. And uh, yeah, help me in particular, Father, not to be as hypocritical when I preach that at a congregation. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.